The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Right now in fast and OPEC up front, the oil cartel not yielding to pressure from the U.S. to keep production levels steady and putting the Biden administration in a precarious place ahead of midterm. So where are oil prices going from here and what will it mean for the already fragile economy? Plus, stocks making a major turnaround with the Nasdaq 100 erasing a more than 2 percent loss at the open to end the day basically flat. One top technician says not to bet that tech will be the leader going forward. He goes off the charts to make the case. And Chewy wags its tail. Macy's on the ball and upside for Bank of America. We've got our eyes on the moves and are bringing you the trades. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market side in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, Bono and Ison, Courtney Garcia, Guy Adami, and Steve Grasso. And we start off with oil outrage. Crude prices popping as OPEC announces plans to cut production by 2 million barrels a day, the biggest cut since the early days of the pandemic. The move enraging the White House, which had been putting pressure on the group to increase output and help lower fuel prices ahead of the midterm elections. The administration calling the decision short-sighted and saying President Biden has directed the release of another 10 million barrels from the SPR next month. So with oil prices now up more than 15 percent from their lows of last week, how much higher can they climb? Guy Adami, I wonder if the Biden administration was surprised that they had no control over global oil output. (laughs) I love that. Listen, you know I'm an equal opportunity hater. But that comment about short-sightedness is just so, I mean, it's so tone-deaf. I mean, what else is short-sighted? Releasing energy from the SPR. We're now at levels we haven't seen in decades. Politically expedient, but not done for the reasons that the SPR was put in place in the first place, number one. Number two, yeah, we don't have any control at all. I mean, go back to April 2020, by the way. Then President Trump was begging OPEC to cut production, if you recall, because energy prices were too low. So the fact that we continue to be reliant on these groups of nations is problematic. To answer your original question, first of all, great call by Steve, who months ago said it was going lower. But I think the bottom's in, and I think it's higher. And again, supply-demand fundamentals are in place, in my opinion, for crude to trade higher. And quickly, without you even realizing, and not you, but maybe people out there, ConocoPhillips, Chevron, and Exxon are now approaching collectively almost $900 billion in market cap, and all of them are within whispers of their all-time highs. So the stocks are actually telling you something. I mean, in the third quarter, even though gas prices, oil prices went down, nat gas prices were up on average month over month. And that's why Exxon said third quarter is going to be strong. Steve Grasso, um, this really sort of underscores the issue, though, in terms of the Fed. This is a major component of inflation, um, something certainly that consumers feel that they have absolutely no, nobody has control over. Yeah, and to Guy's point, so I echo a, a lot of what Guy said. I, I'll say 
I echo 99% of what Guy said. But I do believe that the price of oil is, is going to trade lower. So you brought up Nat Gas. Nat Gas is Russia, Ukraine. So I'm going to leave that out of, the, out of the conversation. Whenever OPEC Plus cuts production, it's counterintuitive. I get it. But the price of oil usually drops after the knee-jerk reaction. Right now, the market has absorbed or is trying to price in a 2 million barrel per day cut. It's not going to be 2 million. We've covered it on the network all day long. Most of the constituents of OPEC, uh, participants of OPEC, are underproducing. They're not even meeting their quotas to begin with. So it's really going to be a $700,000 barrel per day cut. That's not enough to actually move where the market is, supply, demand, equilibrium. This is an overreaction. This tells you how desperate OPEC is. Whenever they cut, that means they're nervous about something on the horizon. Right now, I think it's become political on both sides, of course, where we have the midterm elections uh, ramping up and they're going to be about a month away. But I still believe that you're going to see oil at $65 by year end. This is just a, a minor little blip to the upside and the market overcorrected. Wow. Um, Courtney, would you agree with Steve that oil is headed lower? Uh, I, I actually I don't agree with that. I think that's probably a, a more aggressive on the other side, uh, which we, you might be right. So I guess we shall see there. Um, but I think energy has really looked attractive here um, pre previous to OPEC making this decision. I think that only really likely makes it more attractive as we look forward here because there are structural supply and demand constraints when it comes to energy. And that was the case even before we had this news today. So I think when you're looking later this year, the only problem is it is going to make the Fed's job a little bit more difficult because this was one of the pieces of inflation that had finally come down. And you were seeing actually consumers were using this income to spread to other areas. And so now they're focusing on those other areas to bring down inflation. But now if energy prices are coming back up, it's going to make their job that much harder on cutting interest rates, which means that we could still see a further slowdown ahead. So I think that's probably the bigger uh, theme we're going to see here. But energy is a play. I think it's a wonderful hedge to have in your portfolio. Yeah, Courtney brings up a really good point in terms of like the Fed positioning and how they're going to handle this. I think this is actually very challenging because not only is it a matter of oil increasing, even if oil stabilizes, we've seen that portion of, of inflation decelerate while the rest of that basket has continued to climb to the tune of eight plus percent per annum. So I think this is a very difficult situation. You know, you saw the jobs numbers the last couple of days that are a bit at odds with each other. But I think this definitely puts a wrench in the pivot or peak inflation narrative. Uh, Guy Adami, does this at least tell you that there is some stability when it comes to the price of oil and for the likes of an exit? I mean, if you think that nat gas, that's a European problem, I get that. That's a Ukraine issue. Supplies will remain tight. That means prices remain elevated on that front. Then if you bring up oil prices, that could actually be, uh, you know, that could be great for the oil companies that are exposed to both, like an Exxon. Yeah. Listen, I understand what Steve is saying without question, and it, it makes a lot of sense. I think what's, di what's different this time, I, I hate saying things like that, but what's different this time is, <laughs> again, the supply-demand fundamentals are just out of whack, right? And I think a large part of this move from 130 down to lower levels, but here we are now, I think it's the market trying to front-run what they perceive to be a slowdown in demand, which makes a lot of sense just given what's going on globally. The problem is the numbers don't bear that out. So... You know, you're hoping for demand destruction. I think the short sellers correctly so, so far, but it just hasn't come to fruition. So 
I do think it goes higher. And even if oil were to stay at current levels, again, my opinion, I think it's extraordinarily supportive of these companies that are just run so much better than they were even five years ago. I recognize Steve Grazza because you raised your hand, Steve. So you guys are so polite. You're completely disagreeing. You are so polite. So, Steve, get in there and tell Guy why the supply-demand issue is not an issue. Well, the supply-demand issue was there when it was $129 a barrel as well. So it's been there for – and everyone we talk about states that there's a supply-demand issue. Then there's an infrastructure issue. And then there's an export-import issue. Uh, issue. So there's been plenty of issues, but that's been the issue for the last 50 or $60 to the downside in, in crude oil. So it's actually counterintuitive. I get that. As far as the individual stocks, XLE has been making a series of lower highs since, the, uh, since basically late June or, or mid to late June. And even though it's popped recently, it's still a lower high. So I agree. There were there was uh, obviously the best performing stocks were energy. They've they're run more efficient. There's no question. I have no disagreement with Guy on his premise and his, and his strategy on the energy names. But I think it's been so front loaded and overbought right now that the market usually sets up to upset the most amount of people at any given point. To say that energy will continue higher seems way too obvious to me, and that's why I think it goes lower. All right. For more on how these latest cuts could impact the global energy environment and maybe to say who's right, Guy or Steve, let's bring in KPMG Global Head of Clients and Markets, (laughs) Regina Mayer. Regina, great to have you with us. Um, Steve makes an interesting point, and you make the same point in the notes that I got, and that is that there is underproduction already. So how do these cuts actually factor in and how does that impact the price of oil in reality? Yeah, I, I actually like the, the conversation that you all were having because I do think the market overreacted today. What OPEC Plus did today was really largely procedural. They've been underproducing three and a half million barrels per day against the quotas that they have. So by cutting two million barrels per day, they're really just lining up actuals with production. What was interesting was the Saudi agreement to cut about 500,000 barrels per day and the UAE and Kuwait also making cuts. They are the ones that have spare capacity and they are agreeing to cut. I think that's because they want to drive the price higher. They were more comfortable with it in the 90s. They were looking for the Goldilocks oil price, and they'd like to see more high side from a price perspective. That's what I think happened today. So can I just ask you for a point of clarification? You're saying that OPEC as a group, as the cartel, is underproducing by three and a half million barrels a day. But in terms of the players that had uh, oversupply or overcapacity, they are actually cutting. So isn't isn't there an overall decrease in the amount of oil in the end anyway? I think that we're estimating it's between 800,000 and a million barrels per day in terms of the actual cuts. But I think what the market response was, was way on the high side relative to what that actually means. I do wonder, and here's the thing that I think could be a kicker relative to what ultimately happens. The Saudis do seem to be indicating that they don't have spare capacity. And cutting by a half a million barrels per day could be giving them the breathing room to try to rebuild their own stocks so that there is a little bit more of a a global oil buffer. Um, But you get different perspectives on what's really happening inside the kingdom. How does this all play out for the Biden administration in terms of what they will try to do? We've already heard that they're going to release from the SPR. I'm not sure if that's going to have any sort of lasting impact on the price of oil. But the midterms are coming up. So um, the administration might, might, I don't want to say overreach, but be ambitious in terms of what they can do 
to offset, uh, you know, this cut? There seems to be a lot of focus on this particular meeting um, with what the administration tried to do. So they definitely went out there to try to make an impact. And that's going to have repercussions in terms of what public sentiment might be. They're not going to be able to release SPR barrels on par with how much OPEC can cut. So that's not going to be a, a trade mechanism or a balance of trade mechanism that will end up helping. And we are seeing gas prices steadily increase at the pump in the U.S. So I think those will have potentially an impact on the midterms. And I think that's what we've seen the administration try to respond to, try to get on the front foot. But obviously, we've seen what the outcome was with OPEC Plus's decision. Hi, Regina. It's Courtney here. And thanks so much for joining us. Um, I actually want to go back to something that Steve said earlier, which I think was a really good point, where he said that there is there these structural supply and demand constraints with energy. However, that has been the same when oil was significantly higher price than it is today. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious what your response to that would be. So um, OPEC set aside with these supply demand, supply demand constraints, sorry. Um, where do you think oil should sit in there? Is it below where it should be? I actually think that from a global supply perspective, we're in a lot better place than we were in uh, February, March of this year when the war in Ukraine started. There was a lot of unknowns relative to global supply. And you think about what global stocks did during COVID, a lot of that oil production came offline. A lot of these long cycle investments were, were cut off as oil companies really just tried to survive the pandemic. And so it's taken a, quite a while for that infrastructure to come back into play. I don't believe that we're in the exact same supply-demand fundamentals that we were when prices were in the 120s. I really do think if you look at the five-year average, which is something that I look at pretty closely, we're only about um, 2.5% outside of that five-year average now, whereas we've been well below the five-year average relative to both refined product stocks and uh, global crude and natural gas supplies. And slowly but surely, the world's been building the supply back uh, and demand hasn't necessarily come online as robustly as we thought. Right? We're still seeing a slowdown in China with their COVID restrictions. There's fears about recession and what that might do to reduce demand long term. So I don't necessarily agree that the fundamentals have been the same, but we are still in a tight supply situation with the potential for demand to spike. And that means there's going to be more upward pressure on price in the short term, um, given those fundamentals. How much upward pressure in price, Regina? Well, I was interested because some of the analysts started to call that um, crude could end on average in the 70s this year. I thought that was interesting. I wouldn't have expected that three months ago. Uh, I don't think it gets back to triple digits. I think what OPEC Plus is looking for is where things are landing today, high 80s, 90s for WTI and for Brent, so that they can continue to monetize the natural resources that they have while the world will start to pivot away from hydrocarbons given this volatile and high price environment. Regina, great to speak with you. Thank you. Regina Mayer of KPMG. Uh, Guy, let's say that oil prices stay stay approximately where they are, gas prices stay approximately. Does that give the consumer enough relief still, breathing room, if you will, into the holiday shopping season? Yeah, it should. But, you know, with that said, and you mentioned it earlier, right before our very eyes, gas prices are starting to rise again. But let's just play it both out. Crude doesn't go anywhere and gas doesn't go anywhere. I think people have gotten acclimated to current prices. So as I've said a thousand times on this show, never underestimate the U.S. consumers want to spend. They will do it, especially if prices stay stable. I just don't think that's going to happen. But with that said, if it does in terms of the stocks, I think this price is supportive of still higher uh, prices and energy names.
Yeah, Bonwin. Um, you know what, I think I'm gonna take the other side of that. Um, and, I, and I apologize, Guy, you're, you're typically spot on here and you probably are here. Don't I just, apologize I just, oh, no, for fine. disagreeing oh, with Guy. Guy, He's guy, the, godfather guy is the godfather. And uh, you know, I think it's appropriate. He and Steve are playing polite, so I'm gonna continue to play polite and I'm still gonna express my opinion. I do think regardless of whether oil stabilizes <laughs> here or not, the trends that you're seeing in rents, particularly in the multifamily sector of the economy, those continue to ratchet higher. And I think that those have the largest and most lasting impact on families' ability to spend. You look at credit card data, and you go down to the auto sector, and you're saying that now people are spending on average about $1,000 per month in terms of, in terms of their, their auto um, expense. I think there just comes a point where it's, you're stretched beyond your capacity. And then thirdly, you kind of want to pour on uh, increasing rates. Just At some point, I think there has to be some pivot. There's only so much traveling you can do. There's only so much consumption that can be had, particularly Particularly unless we continue to see upward inflation, uh, upward inflationary uh, pressure on wages, and that is going to be the end-all, tell-all sign in terms of what the Fed is going to do. So I actually think we are getting to a point where something has got to give, and the cracks are starting to show. Coming up, an inventory pileup problem, not for Macy's. How the retailers skirting the backup, plaguing competitors. We got the details ahead. Plus. Steer clear of tech, Strategus's Chris Verone will join us to chart out why the tried and true group may not be the winner amidst this volatility. He'll lay it all out when Fast Money returns. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. While retailers battle inventory gluts heading into the holidays, Macy's is one name that has been able to keep its stockpile under control. According to the Wall Street Journal, the company cut back on orders early this year after noting softening data from its store credit cards. At Q2's end, inventories were up 7% year-on-year compared to 30-plus percent at stores like Target, Home Depot, and Kohl's. Macy's stock still down about 33% this year. If you walk into a Macy's store guy, which I know sometimes you do, um, a lot of their holiday offerings will be new. They won't be things that are left over from the glut from the summer, from seasons past. 
Yeah, they got their inventory. It's only up 7%. I mean, I think in the article they made a point that Kohl's was up like 44%. So, look, they figured that portion out. That's great. But the reality is you still got to want to go there and shop there. And the problems at Macy's have been longstanding. We've been seemingly talking about this stock for years. The reason to own Macy's here, I think the only reason is you think the market's going to somehow stabilize and there's going to be a short covering rally because I think last I looked, it's about an 11% short interest. And we've seen it before. But to hold it for a long-term fundamental play, I, I just think there are better places to be. Next question is, okay, guy, what are those places? And I would say Dollar General, which although we mentioned last <laughs> night lower on a decent tape and lower again today, I still think that's value. I didn't ask that question, but fine. I, I'm glad to get the answer anyway. <laughs> Steve, um, does this put Macy's in a better position or a worse position? And just hear me out in terms of my thinking. Better position, it's got less inventory, it's got new stuff, you know, it's got like the new sweaters and the new scarves and all that kind of stuff that you want to buy for Christmas. At the same time, you've got a lot of these other retailers with the inventory gluts that are marking stuff down. And so if you're a consumer who's feeling the pinch from inflation, you might go to the 40% off rack instead of the full price rack over at Macy's. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. That one, that thing that you just said, the second thing. So, so I think the, the issue, Guy touched on it. You just, you just honed in on it really well. They've solved one side of the equation, but the problem is the main, main, main problem for Macy is no, no one goes there. So other than Guy drifting around, going there, and, and I get that, there's no one buying the stuff. So they adapted. They ordered less but no one's buying it, so it's still a negative. What I do think you're better off doing is what you said, but if you look at Macy's, so I'm, I'm looking at the uh, one month, it's only up 2.5%, three months, it's down 7%, but if you switch to Nordstrom, Nordstrom is up 10% in a month. No one thinks about Nordstrom. No one thinks about that stock anymore, but if you also look at TJX and Ross stores, there's some momentum there as well, so this is not a, a would you rather. Guy, guy actually did a would you rather, but he changes the verbiage on it. So for me, I'd rather be buying, I'm going to do it flat out, TJX or Ross stores or JWM. Macy's, this is in a weak spot. It's handled that weak spot and made them look less weak, but they've handled the wrong side of the equation. They need demand. They don't have it. Should I leave? I don't think you need my services here anymore. You guys are asking your own questions, answering your own questions. Uh, Courtney, what retailer do you like going into the holidays, if any? Yeah, I mean, retailers are tough right now because this is going to be one of the areas that it's easy to cut, right? If, if consumers are going to feel pinched, to Bonowin's point, which I know he thinks is going to be a problem, this is it, an easy place to cut from, whereas you're not going to cut from groceries, you're not going to cut from your gas to get to work. Um, they are really cheap, though. I do think as much as that is a problem, they trade at what, um, less than five times forward earnings, which is almost half of what their longer-term averages are. So I think from the idea that a lot of this is maybe already priced in, there could be a play there. Um, but I would be a little bit cautious on the retailers because I do think they're going to have some short-term pain in the near term. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Bulls, bears, whichever way you think stocks are heading, our next guest says there's one group that won't be leading the charge. The details next. Plus, bank earnings are right around the corner, and options traders are making some deposits ahead of the results. How they're playing the group next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What? 
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks falling just short of notching a third day of gains after climbing into the green late in the day. All three major indices close out negative. And no matter which way markets go from here, our next guest says there is one group you may want to avoid. Let's go off the charts with Chris Verona, Strategus, a Baird company. So, Chris, what are you watching? Hey, Melissa. Yeah, the, uh, thanks for having me. I think when you look at these last, you know, one, two days and you have a 5% rally, you have to ask yourself the question, has anything changed? And as far as I'm concerned, what has not changed is the leadership. So we brought along a couple charts to kind of walk you through uh, just that. Uh, the first, uh, I think, is really compelling. This is triple Qs, so the top of the market versus the equally weighted uh, S&P 500. And what's so telling to us is last week, when the market was down 4%, triple Qs underperformed. This week, with the market up 4.5%, what has also happened, triple Qs have underperformed. So the top of the tape, these big tech growth stocks, we just don't think are your leadership, irrespective of whether the next you know, 200 S&P points uh, is up or down. And you know, I think what we want to do is look at some of the big weights here for clues. So let's take a look at Microsoft, right? This name broke before the S&P broke in mid-September. We've bounced the last several days, but really, has anything changed below 260, 265? Uh, I don't think so. I think that's going to be big resistance going forward. Same thing with Alphabet. You know, it's bounced here the last couple of days. A lot of resistance in the 110 to 112 range. I think that's where you want to fade it. Now, there are 51 analysts who cover the stock. 48 of them still have buys on it. That's for a stock that's down 40 plus percent um, since it peaked. And you know, we look at this also through a few, what I would call bespoke relationships, uh, one of them being discretionary versus energy, right? If something's changing, wouldn't we see a change in that relationship? Even this week, discretionary has continued to underperform energy. Another one of those bespoke uh, uh, charts that we look at um, is tech versus energy. That has also rolled back over here. So, you know, we've had an up market, we've had a down market, but what hasn't changed is discretionary and tech and the triple Qs don't outperform the equal weight S&P and they don't outperform the energy sector. So we just finished with one last exhibit. You know, I think the anecdotal would say that energy is overbought or overowned here, but we don't see it. It's still only four and a half percent of the S&P. And when you look at it over any interval, energy outperformed over the last three days, last five days, last 10 days, last three months, last six months, last one year, last two years. Energy is still very much uh, your leadership here. I think the breadth of the sector is fantastic. We're sticking with that long. It's not tech. It's not discretionary. The leadership is unchanged here. What's the context to this energy call, Chris, in terms of the yeah. direction of the overall market? Well, I think what's been telling all year, right, we've had you know, two or three really good bear market rallies, and we've obviously had a series of lower lows, and energy's maintained its leadership standing throughout all of it. And you know, I, I, I keep thinking about, you know, where is the risk here? I think it's still at the top of the market. Energy's four and a half percent of the S&P. Apple's seven and a half percent of the S&P. Microsoft is six, right? So you're still talking about a sector 
that is uh, one half of an apple. Um, if you look at the flows over the last couple months, you know, even as energy has continued to work, you have seen an exodus from XLE flow. So for us to say it's overowned or overbought, um, it's not showing up in the charts. Chris Bonowin here, pleasure to have you. Um, so continuing yeah, on that topic of market leadership, we're talking about leadership in the energy sector and you're looking at Chevron or Exxon, they trade at like nine or 10 times forward multiples and we're talking about lagging uh, subsector in technology, which is trading depending on the name, I don't know, mid 20s. How should we be um, thinking about forward multiples for the overall S&P as people are coming now saying uh, this might be a great time to start buying? Do we need to con- do we need to rethink our mental framework around what is the right price for the market overall going forward? Yeah, it's a great question. And my partners, uh, Jason Turner and Nick Bonesack, have done some really good work on looking at um, what multiple tranches you would expect given where inflation is. So even if we kind of settle into an area where over the next 12 months, where let's say CPI settles back down to the three uh, three to 5% range, you're still talking about a forward multiple on the S&P that historically would be somewhere in the 14, 15, 16 range, not the 18, 19, 20 range. And I think with respect to growth stocks and tech in particular, you really don't want to own them when their multiples are in the middle of the range. You actually want to own them when they're very, very expensive, right? You want to own growth stocks with PEs of NA, not of uh, some um, some middle of the range value. So I think it's a very important question. I'm not sure we're going to get the multiple relief uh, that we might expect uh, in the year ahead. Chris, thank you. Good to see you. Chris Barone of Strategus. Courtney, what do you do? You say energy? It's. I mean that that uh, graphic was very telling. For any period that you lay out, energy is a top performing sector. Yeah, I mean, recently it has been, and I I don't think that will last forever, but I do think over the short term, I actually completely agree there, and I think you want to continue to have your energy exposure right now. Um, And I do actually like this, this idea, which I've been talking about recently, where tech is not what you want to be overexposed to. You definitely want to own it. I mean, your Apples and your Googles, they're not going anywhere, but I don't think it's something you want to be overweighting right now because you do look at those multiples and they're still pretty expensive right now. And even if inflation starts to moderate and we see interest rates come down, it's still likely to be higher than it was over the last couple of years. So your more expensive, longer duration assets are likely going to underperform. And things like energy, I think, are going to still be positioned to do well. Alphabet guy, Chris said, 110-ish land. You want to fade this one. You agree? Listen, Chris Verone, I got to tell you something. His work has been extraordinary over the last couple years. He's in the pantheon of technical analysts. Parthenon, pantheon. I don't know what the difference is, but he's somewhere, right? (laughs) So, yeah, I think on this tape, given this, (laughs) Google's been an underperformer. It really has not performed well at all. So who's to say it can't trade to those levels? But I have to just mention something because our crack staff back in EC, I mean, what do they call those things on the lower thirds of the screen, Mel? Help me out for a second. The decos, the lower thirds. Come yeah, the lower thirds. Coup de tech. Coup, coup de tech. I mean, Can we put seriously, that up again, that's so good. So is good. it? So good. I was wondering if it's really good or really bad, because I think it could well, really go both. either way. Oh, it's so good. It's it's so bad that it's good. Okay, Steve, what do you Precisely. have to say? Yeah, so I, I, before we get really excited about energy, uh, ExxonMobil, let's take that one out because everyone keeps talking about this large integrated name. It's up 62% year to date. It just got back to the level it was at in 2014. So energy did nothing for years upon years, approaching a decade basically, did nothing. And now do you take your chips off the table 
or think you're going to have another outperformance, I say take your chips off the table. Wait, but I'm no technician, and I didn't say it at Holiday Inn either. But, I mean, the theory in, in technical analysis land is that the longer the base, the higher in space. And so if it did nothing, to quote the great Luis Yamada, oh, who is also in the Parthenon or Pantheon. I, um, okay, go ahead, yeah. Steve. I, I stated that wrong. It, it did nothing would mean that it went sideways. It collapsed for the last okay. day, for eight years prior to this. So it wasn't as if it was just building a base. I would agree with you 100%. You and Louise are 100% right about building that base. It didn't build a base. It did nothing. It had uh, headwinds galore at, at, at its face. And now it started to lift its head, or I shouldn't say that. It lifted its head aggressively off the pandemic low. I get why everyone's excited. And everything that Chris talked about was performance on a relative basis. And yes, on an absolute basis this year. I would say just take your profit and laugh all the way to the bank and invest it somewhere else. The only thing that I would add to that is I think what's different than it was in the 2014-2015 era is your energy companies are so much more efficient now than they were back then. And they were forced to be that way. But I think it just puts it in a different scenario now than it would be. And I think that's why it might still look attractive here. Coming up, deposits, withdrawals, options, financial stocks gearing up to report earnings. So how are options traders positioning ahead of the results? We'll dig in next. And investors getting their paws on Chewy today, shares jumping after analysts say this stock could claw higher. What they are seeing for this name when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Financials, kicking off Q3 earnings next week. BlackRock, J.P. Morgan, City, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, all on deck. But one of the biggest options trades in the space today was in another name, and it is betting on some strength ahead. Brian Sutland joins us now with the action. Hey, Brian. Yeah, when the market sold off this morning, what we saw is traders come in. The financials kind of struggled a little bit off the open, but then we saw a call buyer of the OC32 calls. They traded about 10,000 contracts, traded in the span of about two minutes, just under a buck, 99 cents. These traders basically putting bets on that the stock would trade above $33 before expiration. And interestingly enough, these calls expired just after Bank of America's earnings on October 17th. So certainly this has been a way to play to the upside. Traders out there, rather than buying stock, what's interesting is people have been using calls to play to the upside. That's why the VIX has sort of remained elevated. Option premiums have stayed in this market. And the reason being is there's so much risk going on that these big moves, 2.5% moves in the market or whatnot, Traders rather own calls than actually own the physical stock, and it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, we own Bank of America for clients, but when you look at this stock, it's a, such a huge player with mortgage-backed securities in the CLO market. An inverted yield curve between the two tens is not really that great for Bank of America. We still own it. We like a lot of the insurance names instead, but I think it makes a lot of sense to use calls to play to the upside ahead of these earnings plays because certainly we could get a significant pop. This stock is hung in there above its lows in June. So that's sort of interesting here. You play calls, maybe you get a little pop to the upside, and then, you know, you can sort of bang out of these things. Yeah, Bono, and what do you think? It's all about corporate protection and return on investment, both of which um, are served by purchasing calls rather than stock. I think this is a great flag and uh, something that I definitely would endorse. Yeah, Steve, you like BAC? Uh, when I look at the chart on this, first of all, fine. I, uh, financials are not, I'm not really crazy about chasing financials here. The, every chart looks 
terrible to me. Um, I think if you go into a recession, I'm not sure you really want to be in the financials. But Bank America specifically, if I look back on the chart in, Ju- in July, uh, we just tagged that bottom again. So it looks like it's a sort of a short-term double bottom, which is buyable, and it looks better than most of the financials. Wells Fargo actually looks the best out of all of them. All right. Brian Sutland, thank you. And for more Options Action, tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, barking up the right tree. Shares of Chewy surging more than 10% today. So what had investors jumping into the dog pile? The details next. And throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, we are celebrating our teammates and contributors. Here's the chairman of Agua Media. The punchline here is that the Latino cohort generates $2.7 trillion of GDP. And when we think about the significance of labor force providing 80% of net new workplace entrants, growing consumption at 2x the rate of the rest of the economy, something that any investor, any executive, any person that's thinking about the sustainability of our competitiveness in this country should be aware of, think about, invest in, and catalyze. Do not miss CNBC's virtual ESG impact event where you will meet the investors, activists, and startups solving key ESG challenges to ensure a more sustainable and equitable future. Use a QR code on your screen to register. Meantime, shares of Chewy topping the tape today, climbing more than 10% after one market research firm said it thinks the pet care company will beat Q3 earnings estimates. The analyst saying sales could rise 11% from last year. Shares of Chewy up nearly 12% the last month, but are still off uh, 54% from their year high. So what to make of this report? It says in the prompter, let's chew on it. So I'm not going to resist <laughs> that. Let's chew on it, Steve Grasso. Um, you know, it's interesting. I read a report, you know, in preparation for this conversation, and I had never heard of the term household pet formation, but apparently that is down since during the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> People are buying fewer new yeah, pets, which, and that's not helpful. Yeah, but the, the pets that they bought, I don't think, are dead yet. So they bought them during the <laughs> pandemic, so it doesn't matter. They, they, still, they, still, they still have to feed these pets. So it's a a matter of it it could, first of all, off the pandemic low, I I bought a dog uh, off the pandemic low as well, but I'm still feeding him. I have to feed him when the show is over as well. So for me, it's it's about uh, growing sales. and It's also about the auto ship. So auto ship now is is uh, is up to above 72 percent on their sales, which means that it's just literally rinse and repeat. The other thing is they're starting to offer services and other things that have higher margins associated with them. This stock has not been a winning trade, but it's closing that gap. And I think it can make a run to 50. We're in the mid to to upper 30s right now. I think you should probably put some money to work here. I'm staying invested in the name. I hope these pets are alive, although I would like to see proof of life of your dog. Um, Guy, you know, consumables is the key for a Chewy. To Steve's point, feeding them, even if one-off sort of pet accessories, the bed, the chew toy, those are sort of more once-in-a-while purchases. 
Yeah, I mean, I got three dogs. They have nicer stuff than I do, which should come as no surprise to our viewing audience. But, you know, last quarter, look, revenues last quarter for Chewy were really good. The problem is they don't make any money. I mean, maybe, they'll, maybe they're looking at profitability this quarter. I don't think they report until December. But go back and look. The stock rallied all into August until they reported. I think it traded up to 49, and then it cratered. I mean, you're setting up for a similar type of move. So it's all about margins. It's all about how well they're running the business. And... You know, yes, you should feed your pets, and yes, you should be kind to your pets, but that doesn't mean these stocks are good to own. Again, just my opinion. <laughs> Coming up, Digital Details, the CEO of Trade Desk, joins us next to break down the digital advertising landscape and how some social media headlines could change the scene in a big way. More on that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Elon Musk may have revived his bid for Twitter, but what will the deal mean for the broader social media space and specifically the digital advertising landscape? Here with us on set to discuss that is the Trade Desk CEO, Jeff Green, a longtime fan of Fast Money. The company just held its investor day yesterday. In fact, the day I think you went public, you came straight up to this desk and introduce yourself. So, I did. I'm yeah. a big fan of the show, so thank you for having me. <laughs> Finally able to be on the show. So thank exactly. You. Well, welcome, Jeff. Great to have you, you with us. Um, so we, we hear all of these anecdotal stories about slowdowns in advertising. So what are, what are you seeing at this point? So uh, I've long been an advocate that we need something like the VIX in advertising. Now, it wouldn't move quite as often as the VIX does in the equities markets. But if we did have a VIX for advertising, it would be at an all-time high in the sense that there's a lot of anxiety. And it's caused by the same things that are causing anxiety on this desk, which is uh, what is the Fed going to do? What is that going to have for impact throughout the entire uh, uh, economy? And CMOs are just looking at what their CFO is going to do and saying, how do I become more responsive? And what that typically means is that they're trying to be, do more with less. Uh-huh. And that means that they're spending in things that they can see an ROI in. And that's been very good for our business, even though the overall economy is clearly facing some headwinds. So basically, and I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, if a company is trying to be much more careful, uh, careful about their ad spend, they might lean on you more in order to use that ad spend more wisely, more effectively? Exactly. So when you have to do more with less, you have to become more data-driven. And there are parts of advertising that are still not data-driven at all, where there's just a lot of guessing that goes into it. But there are parts of it that you can measure really effectively. And there's a whole bunch of new inventory and changes that are happening. We talked about social a little bit. But to me, the most exciting one is in connected television and streaming, mm-hmm. where there's a lot coming in that direction and there's a lot of opportunity, which has become the biggest opportunity and biggest secular tailwind for our business. The launch of ad-supported platforms is, is huge. Are you seeing demand um, for placement already onto these platforms? And are there certain kinds of platforms that do better than others? Absolutely. So, uh, uh, You know, five years ago, I basically said that we're betting our business on CTV. I said that at the day of our IPO, uh, uh, um, and it has absolutely come true. So that's already been true for us. CTV meaning connected Connected television. Yeah, Yeah, so anything that is streaming, so the Hulus of the world, the Peacocks. Uh, But, of course, uh, last year we heard from three of the very biggest, or over the last year, rather, we've heard from three of the biggest in Netflix, HBO, and Disney+. Plus. And with all of those in Q1 having significant additions to AVOD, that represents one of the biggest secular tailwinds in the history of our business and big opportunities for advertisers 
to finally bring precision to television advertising that has historically been more guessing and less precise. Jeff, when we first met on the set, I mean, listen, as you know from watching the show, I'm not the brightest bulb in the fixture, but I figured <laughs> you're just another trading desk. I'm like, what? You know, we don't need a. But I've come to learn, obviously, nothing but. But, you know, you would think intuitively this environment is actually probably not good for you. I would submit this is probably some of the best environments your business finds itself in. I don't think the stock is being rewarded for it, but can you speak to that? Uh, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, since the pandemic, our stock is up 300%. But in terms of the potential of our stock, and certainly what's happened to tech recently, we've been hurt just like so many of the rest. Uh, uh, but in terms of the potential, we're in this really amazing position, which is that if there's more pressure on the consumer, then they are much more interested in the AVOD solutions or the advertising on demand. In other words, they're selecting the ads rather than paying a premium to get rid of them. And so if there's pressure on the consumer, they're gonna see more ads and that creates more opportunity for us to add value to the biggest advertisers in the world. So in an economic slowdown, they need us more. And if things are great, they need us too. So in any condition, I think we're doing really well. Um, you're an active trader yourself. You enjoy trading stocks and all sorts of things. So just quickly, do you agree with Grasso that oil's headed to 65 or Guy uh, <laughs> that oil's headed higher? I think oil's heading higher. <laughs> I, right. uh, and I'm holding positions uh, that reinforce that. So I believe that. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I think it's going higher. All right, Jeff, great to see you. Thank you so Come much. Come by anytime, Jeff Green of uh, the Trade Desk. Steve Grasso voted against you. What do you think of, what do you think of Trade Desk? Yeah, I think... I think I think I think Jeff's got to stick to advertising space. Let's stick to where his uh, core competency is instead of instead of uh, investing in energy. I do like this name, and I think Guy brings up a great point. I, when you when you look at the ad space, think about what all these streaming uh, uh, entities are doing now. They're all adding an advertising element. So Jeff's business is only going to grow. And a couple of months ago, he shocked, uh, he shocked people to the upside. Stock traded up 40%. He's probably got another couple of rabbits in his hat, too, for that stock. All right. Up next, final trades. Final trades, Guy. I dig Jeff. The trade desk, TTD, <laughs> Melms. Steve. I'm going to do two things when I get off the show. I'm going to bring in the boxes from Chewy at my front door, and then I'm going to feed my dog, Chewy. <laughs> Courtney. Uh, the big debate today has been energy. Is it going higher or lower? I'm going to take the over here, and I think Exxon is a great way to play this. By the way, Jeff said that he's going to call when he makes money off of his oil trade, Steve, FYI. Bono in. And I'm going to raise my hand and be a proponent of cash. If it is good enough for Mr. Cash's trash, Ray Dalio himself, good enough for me. Cash. All right. Cash. Thanks for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, do not go anywhere. A CNBC special, Markets in Motion, starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.